Welcome to the Religion of the Month Club, a podcast where we discuss texts from the world's scriptural traditions. Today is the first day of the sixth month of the year 2564 of the Buddhist calendar. In this episode, we will be discussing the Heart Sutra. Avalokiteshvara, while practicing deeply with the insight that brings us to the other shore, suddenly discovered that all of the five skandhas are equally empty. And with this realization, he overcame all ill-being. Listen, Sariputra, this body itself is emptiness, and emptiness itself is this body. This body is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than this body. The same is true for feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Listen, Sariputra, all phenomena bear the mark of emptiness. Their true nature is the nature of no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no defilement, no purity, no increasing, no decreasing. That is why in emptiness, body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness are not separate self-entities. The 18 realms of phenomena, which are the six sense organs, the six sense objects, and the six consciousnesses, are also not separate self-entities. The 12 links of interdependent arising and their extinction are also not separate self-entities. Ill-being, the causes of ill-being, the end of ill-being, the path, insight, and attainment are also not separate self-entities. Whoever can see this no longer needs anything to attain. Bodhisattvas who practice the insight that brings us to the other shore see no more obstacles in their mind, and because there are no more obstacles in their mind, they can overcome all fear, destroy all wrong perceptions, and realize perfect nirvana. All Buddhas in the past, present, and future by practicing the insight that brings us to the other shore, are capable of attaining authentic and perfect enlightenment. Therefore, Sariputra, it should be known that the insight that brings us to the other shore is the great mantra, the most illuminating mantra, the highest mantra, a mantra beyond compare, the true wisdom that has the power to put an end to all kinds of suffering. Therefore, let us proclaim a mantra to appraise the insight that brings us to the other shore. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. This is commonly known as the Heart Sutra. The translation I just read was by um, Thichnat Han, um, a famous. Uh, Zen Buddhist monk from Vietnam who was uh, very active in, well, still active, um, but came to prominence, I think, in the 60s and 70s. Um, And uh, he translates the the title of this as The Insight That Brings Us to the Other Shore. If you've ever been to a Zen monastery or um, similar kind of uh, setting, there's a good chance that uh, the Heart Sutra was chanted at the end of the service. Um, at least that was the experience that I had when um, attending services at the San Francisco Zen Center, um, and I think at other places too. 
uh, Zen, of course, being um, the Japanese for Chan. Um, Zen is the version that's most commonly uh, known in the United States um, to the point where uh, Chinese and Vietnamese versions of the same tradition are typically referred to by the, by the Japanese name Zen. Um, <clears throat> the, it may be chanted in English, uh, some version of English, some English translation or in, um, Sino-Japanese, which is essentially, um, Chinese, uh, but pronounced with a Japanese translation. Um, so it's not exactly Japanese and it's not exactly Chinese. Um, it's sort of somewhere between the two. One of the things that's kind of interesting about uh, versions of the Heart Sutra is um, most historians believe that the Heart Sutra was composed in China uh, and then was essentially back-translated into Sanskrit um, in order to make it seem more traditional. <clears throat> uh, we have versions of the Heart Sutra in, in a variety of languages, uh, including, of course, Chinese and Sanskrit and Tibetan and so on. Now. This is the most recent of all the texts that we've read so far. Um, this one was written supposedly around 661 of the Common Era. Um, so that makes it about 1100 years after the first turning of the wheel. This is referred to sometimes as the second turning of the wheel. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting about this sutra is that uh, it in some ways actually refer refutes the first turning of the wheel. So if you go back and listen to episode three, when um, I read the uh, sermon that um, Gautama Buddha uh, or Siddhartha um, gave outside of Varanasi, you'll recall the statement of the Four Noble Truths. Now the Four Noble Truths make an appearance in this sutra as well, um, but in a slightly different way. So when Avalokiteshvara says ill-being, the causes of ill-being, the end of ill-being, the path. These are the four noble truths. Ill-being being life is suffering, the causes of ill-being being that suffering is caused by desire, the end of ill-being being nirvana, and of course the path being the Eightfold Path. So in this translation, it's ill-being, the causes of ill-being, the end of ill-being, the path, insight and attainment are all not separate self-entities. Whoever can see this no longer needs anything to attain. So this basically pulls the rug out from under the uh, established uh, wisdom of of, um, of the first turning of the wheel, which is why it is considered to be a, um, a wholly separate or wholly new turning of the wheel. In, in the tradition of Buddhism, obviously, it's still Buddhism. Um, <clears throat> but one that goes uh, beyond the original insights that were laid down um, 1,100 years earlier. Now, returning to um, Thich Nhat Hanh's translation of this sutra, uh, entitling it, The Insight That Brings Us to the Other Shore, um, and that, that phrase being repeated several times throughout the sutra, um, there's something important to be noted here, which is this terminology around um, bringing us to the other shore. Um, this goes back uh, a long way, especially it's, it's used a lot in, in Mahayana Buddhism, this idea of Buddhism um, being a vehicle. Um, so you might recall in my um, in episode three, I referred to Theravada Buddhism 
versus Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana meaning literally great vehicle, and uh, the Mahayana Buddhists referring to the Theravada tradition as the Hinayana, or little vehicle uh, tradition. Um, it's it's sort of a variation of the idea of it as a path. Um, you know, in, in the first sermon, it, it was referred to as the uh, Eightfold Path. Um, but it's a it's a different metaphor, and it has some interesting connotations when you think of it um, more as a vehicle instead of a path. Um, part of the idea of thinking about it as a vehicle is that it is useful to get you where you're going, and that's all. Um, so when you reach the other shore, you don't need the boat anymore. Um, and that's uh, something that is... A big part of um, Mahayana Buddhism is this idea that um, the 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 tradition itself, the the teachings themselves, are um, are useful only insofar as they get you where you're going. <clears throat> this is the concept of uh, related to the concept of upaya. Uh, upaya um, means it refers to skillful means, um, and it's significant that it's a it's a means to an end. Um, the end is liberation. The end is enlightenment. Uh, the means are um, kind of more circumstantial. Um, and that's why there are many skillful means. Um, one of the things that's kind of interesting about Buddhism is, um, and this is also true in Hinduism, actually, but um, this idea that there are many paths or many ways, um, some better than others, some more effective than others, some more effective maybe in certain situations than others or with certain people than others. So when this second turning of the wheel refutes the first turning, it's not saying that the first turning was wrong. Um, it's just saying the first turning uh, maybe may have some limitations, and that um, this version, this sort of approach, um, may be more effective. Um, that's up to you to decide. Um, it's up to millions of Buddhists to decide. Um, <clears throat> some prefer one some another. Um, many American Buddhists will uh, often start with one tradition and then switch to the other when they find that that works better for them. Um, but I think one of the things that, that um, they would all agree upon is that, I would hope, is that there's um, that it's really about what works, um, that, that the goal is what's important. Um, in Zen, there's this idea of, of the finger pointing at the moon. Um, don't confuse the finger for the moon. Uh, the moon is what's important. Now, if we return to the beginning of Avalokiteshvara's sermon to Sariputra, um, he starts by saying, the body itself is emptiness, and emptiness itself is this body. Um, then he repeats that, saying, this body is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than this body. So he really is trying to reinforce this um, unity of body or form with emptiness. Um, in this translation, the body, the implication seems to be the body is referring to um, the human body um, that the speaker is referring to. Um, but you can also think of it more broadly as, uh, or I've also seen it translated as form, uh, the word form and body being synonyms, of course. Um, form, saying form is emptiness, I actually prefer, uh, by, well, I think this body is self as emptiness is a little bit easier to wrap your head around because a body is a physical thing and it's easier to think about a body. Um, when we see the translation form is emptiness, um, that's a little bit more abstract um, and it 
it's kind of, I, when I first heard it and read it, um, I really had trouble kind of wrapping my head around it. Um, however, I would uh, encourage you to, to consider that translation um, as well, because I think it uh, opens up a lot more um, when you think about it in those terms of, of uh, form as uh, an abstract um, principle of, of existence being emptiness. So um, when you think about this body itself as emptiness, um, that can be actually a really powerful and useful meditation um, of just meditating on the body itself as emptiness. Um, and I encourage you to do that. Um, whereas thinking of form as emptiness um, is more of a mental exercise, um, but can also be very powerful and effective in its own way. Um, the same is true of feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Um, there's a lot of lists in Buddhism, um, and this is uh, inheriting that tradition. Um, so, and it says the same is true of feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. Uh, this is this is a reference to um, to basically aspects of mind or of self um, that have been well established within Buddhism. Um, we don't really need to go into the details of that, just to just to be aware that that is what's going on there, uh, and we see that again repeated. Um, that is why emptiness, body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness are not separate self entities. Um, basically, bringing together this this paradox of um, form and formlessness. Um, so, Avalokiteshvara starts with these um, these aspects of self being empty. Um, but he also says, uh, he then goes on to say, all phenomena bear the mark of emptiness. Their true nature is the nature of no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no defilement, no purity, no increasing, no decreasing. So these are these, these four dualities, birth, death, being, non-being, defilement, purity, increasing, decreasing. Um, these are kind of essential um, aspects of the universe. Um, and one of the things that, that occurs in Taoism, and of course this is being composed in China in the 7th century CE, so long after um, the Tao Te Ching was written, so that we can assume that um, the author or authors of this were well aware of um, Taoist philosophy. Uh, Taoist philosophy has um, this idea of uh, the beginning of, of duality and that you can only understand one aspect of duality by considering the other by considering its opposite so from a Dao, from a Taoist perspective there is no birth without death there is no increasing without decreasing um, this doesn't uh, negate that but it, it does seem to it almost seems to riff on it in a way um, it's it's basically um, kind of going back to the source um, so you might recall in my episode on the Tao Te Ching, the distinction between source and mother. Um, and so here we, we see this returning to the source. So the translation goes, the 18 realms of the phenomena, which are the six sense organs, that is eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, the six sense objects, that is form, sound, smell, taste, touch, or thought, and the six consciousnesses, that is, body, 
um, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. These are also these are not separate self entities. So it's essentially breaking down everything that we experience, um, both in terms of the objects of, in, of experience and the ways in which we experience them. It's here that Avalokiteshvara goes on to say, not only are um, the 12 links of interdependent rising and their extinction uh, not separate self-entities, um, in other words, dissolving everything that we think is real uh, sensorially, cognitively, and so on. Um, it's, it's only at this point that he cuts to the heart of Buddhism itself by saying, ill-being, the causes of ill-being, the end of ill-being, the path, insight, and attainment are also not separate self-entities. Um, another translation puts it even more bluntly, saying... Um, also, there is no truth of suffering, of the cause of suffering, of the cessation of suffering, nor of the path. There is no wisdom and there is no attainment whatsoever. Now, when Thich Nhat Hanh translates this part, he says, whoever can see this no longer needs anything to attain. So this is one of those places, again, where uh, translation uh, of the same concept can produce very different uh, interpretations. And of course, every translation is an interpretation. So the way Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, um, whoever can see this no longer needs anything to attain. Uh, that's a lot more gentle, perhaps, um, than the more um, brutal, uh, there is no wisdom and there is no attainment whatsoever, which is actually the translation that I'm more familiar with. So if you prefer Thich Nhat Hanh's translation, um, that's fine. That's certainly a more um, uh, easier to approach uh, understanding. Whoever can see this no longer needs anything to attain. Um, however, the, the more stark translation um, or more brutal translation, if you will, um, there is no wisdom, there is no attainment whatsoever. Um, I think that this this translation is also worth meditating upon. Um, it's a bit more paradoxical, right? Because if there is no wisdom and there is no attainment whatsoever, then what are we doing? <laughs> why why are we even uh, listening to this podcast? Um, but um, I think the the paradox of that is actually um, part of what's at the essence of this of this sutra. Now, moving on to the end of the sutra. Um, after saying all Buddhas in the past, present, and future by practicing the insight that brings us to the other shore are capable of attaining authentic and perfect enlightenment, it closes with, therefore, Sariputra, it should be known that the insight that brings us to the other shore is the great mantra. Now remember, insight that brings us to the other shore is the, tran is the translation of the title that Thich Nhat Hanh gave us for the sutra. So there is a self-referential quality now at the end of the, at the sutra. So he says, uh, it should be known that the insight that brings us to the other shore is the great mantra, the most illuminating mantra, the highest mantra, a mantra beyond compare, a true wisdom that has the power to put an end to all kinds of suffering. Therefore, let us proclaim a mantra to praise the insight that brings us to the sh other shore. And then is the um, sort of a strange uh, phrase at the end or, or incantation 
Um, it really is like an incantation. It's a, it's a mantra, but it's it's um, it's sort of this weird hybrid of Chinese and Sanskrit. Um, it doesn't really translate, um, although people have tried to translate it. Um, so in the in the version that Thich Nhat Hanh uh, gives, he does not try to translate it. He simply um, includes gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. Uh, repeats it three times. Um, that's pretty traditional. Um, I have seen the translation gone, gone, altogether gone, um, and so on. Um, there's a translation by Douglas Fox, which is kind of interesting because in this translation, he finds it um, appropriate to translate uh, wisdom, um, pranya paramita, um, to, to personify it as oh, as a woman um, or like a goddess. Um, this is this is not that unusual. Um, in the Greek tradition, we have Sophia, um, meaning wisdom, but wisdom is, is personified in that case. Um, we also have in the Jewish tradition, Shekhinah, which isn't wisdom exactly. It's more just like the power of God, which is actually more like Shakti in the Hindu tradition. Um, but uh, so... The idea of personifying these powers or these these uh, aspects of of the universe is is certainly not unusual. Um, however, I, I this is the first time that I've seen it in in this particular context, having wisdom personified. So the way he translates it is, "Oh, you who are gone, gone beyond, gone utterly beyond, hail wisdom." Uh, he puts brackets, "Lady" after you. So it actually says, Oh, you, lady, who are gone, gone, gone beyond, gone utterly beyond, hail wisdom. Um, I think that the translations of that uh, part are um, a bit speculative. Um, I mean, I think that it's, it does mean that, but um, I think that the power of the end of the sutra is um, more in the sounds and in the uh, incantation of it than the actual literal translation. Um, but one of the things that you see in in this tradition is that, um, and this is sort of a arguably defining characteristic of, of scripture and what makes scripture different from other texts, is that the text itself takes on a special quality. So uh, going back to what I said at the beginning about how uh, if you go to a, a Zen um, service, there's a very good chance that you will hear this mantra, the sutra, um, chanted, uh, either in English or in some other language. Um, and it's because it's partially to remind people, remind the, the people there of the wisdom of the sutra itself. And it's also because the um, tradition that, that simply reciting the sutra has transformative powers. Um, and I think this is kind of an interesting concept that that is uh, maybe lost in the modern world, um, where we we you know information gets sort of commodified. Um, but it's part of what allows these the, these words of wisdom to be passed down uh, and and memorized and recited. Uh, and the idea of a self-referential scripture um, is uh, not that unusual. Um, in, in Exodus, um, the Torah is named. Um, now, the Torah that is referred to in Exodus is probably not, should not be considered to be 
the same as what we now call the Torah. Um, the same thing in the Quran. The Quran refers to itself, um, but you shouldn't necessarily understand the Quran that's referenced in the Quran as the book that you're holding. Um, but um, there is a kind of a, a the self-referential quality of these of these texts is, I think, um, very interesting and very unusual because you don't see that very often in in uh, non-sacred texts. Um, the one example of a of a secular text that I can think of that does that is the novel House of Leaves by Mike, uh, Mark Danielewski, um, where the book House of Leaves actually appears in the book House of Leaves. Um, it's the kind of thing that you might expect from an author like Philip K. Dick, um, you know, in, in uh, Man in a High Castle. But um, those are all, of course, techniques that were, you know, taken by these speculative fiction authors um, from scripture. Um, they're, they're essentially imitating scripture when they do that. So I will leave you with that, and uh, I will read um, the sutra one more time, um, as I have done in the past. Uh, this time I will read Fox's translation. Uh, but before, before I do, um, I'll leave you with a couple of practices and a question. Um, so the, the practices are, one, um, to meditate on your body as nothingness. Um, so just sit down for a few moments, and or lie down, however you wish. Just close your eyes and just visualize empty space in in the space of your body. Um, and the other um, is a practice that uh, I kind of I didn't actually mention when discussing this text, but would have been uh, probably a practice that um, the, the people who first listened to it uh, would have been practicing, which would be uh, attending to. The, sen the senses and the objects of sense. So going back to uh, sight, sound, touch, uh, uh, smell, taste, um, and, and mind, um, in the Buddhist conception there are six sense organs, uh, mind being one of them. Um, I, I encourage you to, to spend some time with those senses and just uh, try um, experiencing, you know, sitting for a moment and, and experiencing, you know, really tuning into each sense systematically, um, one at a time, and distinguishing the sensing and the thing being sensed um, with, with each of your senses, um, ending with, with mind itself, with, with the content, contents of consciousness. Um, and I also leave you with one key question, uh, which is, um, to think about whatever path you're on or whatever it is that you find as a source of wisdom and um, think about what um, what does it mean to be um, a vehicle and uh, not necessarily the truth, um, but a means to an end. Um, I guess it's not really a question. I guess it's another practice. But anyway, uh, with all that said, here we go. Honor to the Lady, Noble Transcendent Wisdom. The noble Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara, was brooding in the flowing depths of the course of transcendent wisdom. Looking about, he sees the five skandhas to be empty of essence. He said, Here, Sariputra, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness, and emptiness is not other than form. That which is form equals emptiness, and that which is emptiness is also form. 
precisely the same may be said of form and the other skandhas, feeling, perception, impulse, and consciousness. Here, Sariputra, all dharmas bear the marks of emptiness, which are not to have arisen nor to have been suppressed, neither to be corrupt nor pure, and neither unfinished nor complete. Therefore, Sariputra, emptiness is not form, nor feeling, perception, impulse, nor consciousness. It is not the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. It is not shape, sound, odor, flavor, nor object of touch or thought. It is not the experience of vision, and so on, until we reach. It is not elements of mental discrimination. It is not learning or ignorance. And it is not the elimination of learning or ignorance, and so on, until we reach. It is not senility or death. And it is not the elimination of senility and death. It is not suffering, beginning, ceasing, or a path. It is not knowledge, not attainment or realization, and therefore neither is it non-attainment. The Bodhisattva, bound to transcendent wisdom, lives with nothing clouding his mind. Lacking confusion, he is intrepid, and having passed over error, reaches nirvana. All Buddhas of the past, present, or future, bound to irrefutable transcendent wisdom, reach completely full understanding and the highest awakening. Therefore, transcendent wisdom should be known as the great mantra, the great knowledge mantra, the invincible mantra, the unsurpassable mantra, causing all suffering to cease. It is trustworthy because it is not false. It is the mantra proclaimed in the Prajnapanaramita, and it is thus, O you who are gone, gone, gone beyond, gone utterly beyond, hail wisdom. With these words, the heart of transcendent wisdom is complete. Thank you for listening. I hope you will join us next month when we discuss the Katha Upanishad.